We are uh, in the midst of chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians. And uh, we will have, it looks like, two more messages, I believe, in this chapter, uh, just to uh, be able to cover everything we want to cover. And so that's just kind of let you know where we're going to be here. And I've got... No, here it is. Okay. I want to... Uh, I didn't get quite get a chance to finish up uh, something from last week. I wanted to make sure I did that before we got going today. But last week we saw a clear theme of chapter 14 is that gifts of tongues are not one of the most important gifts. Of course, we, you saw that even as Jeff was reading that today. And that if there is no interpreter, then they are of no value to anyone. Of course, you are to keep silent in the church. And so... Uh, <clears throat> With that in mind, and keeping in mind that as we go through chapter 14, this is finishing up this subject, we have to keep in mind everything that we've learned in chapters 12 and 13, which is really all about not just gifts, but tongues in particular, and, and it's their use of tongues. Uh, we see that a church that emphasizes what Paul is de-emphasizing is, in fact, emphasizing emotion and confusion over edification and order. And that point will be made very clearly also at the end of chapter 14. But but if Paul is saying anything, and we, we, we read ahead last week through chapter, or through verse 19. But if Paul is saying anything in this chapter, it is that tongues have a place, at least tongues had a place at that time. But they are uh, not uh, equal to the clear proclamation of the word of God in tongues that are interpreted, that aren't interpreted, really are of no value at all. And we'll, I think, see that as we go through this today, through verse 19. <clears throat> I think John MacArthur had a legitimate point as I just kind of finish up verse 4 where he says that the one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. <clears throat> but John MacArthur believes that Paul is being somewhat sarcastic in verse 14 because his point is that no one is edified by tongues alone without an interpreter while everyone is edified if they understand what is being said. So he, he believes that Paul is not trying to establish an, an unknown prayer language but that Paul is merely contrasting the fact that if you speak in a way that no one understands, uh, it is of, is of no real value. And so the building up here of such a person would be one's pride. So in other words, <clears throat> when he says that the one who speaks in a tongue builds himself up, it's a little tongue-in-cheek. It's, he's not saying that if you pray in tongues, even though you don't understand what's being said, you're being edified. Because, <clears throat> I mean, I think you have a hard time trying to prove that. That you're being edified if you don't know what you're saying, right? So he believes, Paul is saying that you're building yourself up in that you are uh, building yourself up in pride. But there's no sp- spiritual understanding and there's no growth. And, and I think there's a point to be made. You know, it, I, I won't say for sure that's what's Paul's, in Paul's mind. But I think it rings true with, as you read through this whole entire context. And as we did last week, we read down to verse 19. It seems that's exactly Paul's overall point. Anyway, either way, anyway you want to look at verse 4. <clears throat> it seems obvious to me 
that he makes the point in these verses that even the one praying in tongues is not being edified uh, and that if you don't have an interpreter, no one else is being edified as well. And we saw that in uh, verse 14 through 15, for instance, which we'll get to in a moment where it says, For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. And we'll deal a little bit more with that later on. <clears throat> so in other words, his point is that's not a good thing. Some people think it's a good thing to pray even to yourself in a tongue that it, that it somehow is helpful. And I'll, I'll explain that a little bit later. But I think Paul's point is saying that really, no, nothing is being accomplished. <clears throat> so what should excite us is seeing God's people grow in holiness and learning the word of God. And I see in these verses that Paul can make a conscious decision to pray normally and not in a tongue, which is unlike what we see today. Paul says that if you're praying without an interpreter, if you're speaking in tongues without an interpreter, don't do it. And what we hear today is that uh, that when the Spirit fills you, you've got to do it. You can't help yourself. And yet there's no place in, in the Word of God where a tongue is ever exercised without uh, on, without being, being done on purpose with one's mind and as Paul will say later on we'll get to this in a week or two that um, it's possible to, to have a word come from God and that you don't have to exercise it you can keep quiet and, and again that, that is contrary I think to a lot of what we see in the charismatic uh, movement today the purpose of spiritual gifts are to minister for God, not to God. We need the gifts. The Lord doesn't need the gifts. The Lord doesn't need us praying to him in something in a way that we don't understand. He needs people who love him, who want to praise him, who want to commune with him, but not to, he doesn't need mindless uh, dribble that nobody understands. And I think if you just stop and think about that, that makes perfect sense. At least it does to me. I might just be completely wrong, but I doubt it. <clears throat> and so there's certainly nothing here that would suggest that the church is to pursue tongues as the preeminent gift. And, that, and if we don't take away anything else, we certainly have to take that away. <clears throat> as a church that seeks tongues as that which is necessary... That which is emphasized clearly, I think, has no biblical warrant for such a, a thing. <clears throat> and I say that in light of verse 5, which is where we begin today, which says, Now I want you all to speak in tongues. He's not contradicting himself. Again, notice every verse here almost is, is a contrast. I want you all to speak in tongues because after all, if... It's legitimate, and we saw last week that the tongues in plural speaks of the legitimate gift of the, of the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit moves everybody to speak in tongues, Paul is certainly not going to uh, uh, say that's not a good thing. So he's glad, if the Holy Spirit is working his people, he's glad no matter how it is. But, again, it's really, he says that in a way of contrast. But I, I want even more everybody to speak plainly, to prophesy, to prophesy in a way that people understand. Because, again, his point is that that's more important. 
So Paul is showing why prophecy is more useful, a more useful gift than tongues, because it edifies and teaches without a need of an interpreter. So it it is much easier and and, uh, more efficient, we might say. And we have saw that there are, uh, we have seen that there are uh, three biblical uses for tongues. One being revelation, that is, when it was interpreted, it would be that people would be praising God, and that would be interpreted. The other two were, as we saw, assigned to Israel and proof of receiving the Holy Spirit. And so if Paul is trying to establish a private prayer language here in verses 3 through 5 or so, like some people say he is, then what we have here is a fourth use of tongues that Paul is very uh, casually seeming to be uh, introducing that was not known before, uh, this, this fourth use of private prayer language. And I just think you have a hard time being faithful to Scripture uh, and saying that this is what Paul is doing, when it seems like everything Paul is doing is kind of showing that tongues isn't all that needful to start with. <clears throat> so what do we make of verse 5 then? <clears throat> well, first of all, he knows that the Spirit is not going to give them all that gift. And I, so he's saying it in a sense as a hyperbole, uh, as a contrast. Um he is making it clear that he doesn't despise the gift. And again, that's important because at that time, the Holy Spirit was still causing people to speak in tongues. Paul was still speaking in tongues. So Paul is saying, I'm, it's not like I'm against tongues. I just We just need to understand tongues' place in the church. <clears throat> and if it comes from the Lord, the Lord is going to send an interpreter and everybody will be in, in, in edified. So Paul's not against it as long as it's being used properly. And having said that, he says that he would wish even more that they would all proclaim the word of God plainly and boldly in prophecy. So if you're going to pray for a gift, which one should it be? Because a lot of people today are told to pray for the gift of tongues. It is a sign that you're saved. And if you don't have it, then you're probably either not a Christian or some would say that you haven't reached the, the level that you should reach. Well, I don't see tongue or Paul telling people to pray for the tongue of uh, the, the, prophet, the gift of tongues, really. He's praying to pray for the gift of prophecies. Again, go back to verse 1. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. And again, how does that work in the modern charismatic movement? Notice that tongues is plural, as he's referring to the legitimate gift of tongues. Now, this is interesting. I kind of saw this this week. Remember last last week I said that in this chapter... When you see the word tongue singular, Paul seems to be speaking of the misuse of tongue, or tongue in which that's not being translated uh, without an interpreter. A tongue that's not, uh, it, it could be an actual gift of tongues, but it's not producing anything. When you see it in plural, it, it seems to be an indication he's speaking about just a general uh, gift of tongues, a legitimate gift of tongues. Well, I was reading through the KJV this week in this passage, and I noticed something I never noticed before. In my mind growing up, I always thought the KJV just always put unknown tongues, unknown, the word unknown before tongues. 
And I was reading this, and I noticed that that's not what they do. They actually, it's actually pretty interesting. They put unknown only before tongues singular, and they don't put it before tongues plural. And so I think what, what it is, they've read this, and in doing this, uh, tongues, for, uh, foreign isn't in the original, but they realize that there was a difference here. And that the tongue singular was, was not being interpreted, and so it wasn't accomplishing anything. And so they really do, in their own way, they it's, they don't keep it literal, but they, they say, you know what, we feel like this is the place where we can kind of expand in our translation from the original. I think they got it right. It, it's it's kind of, I think, proves the same point I was making last week. And it's interesting that they never put unknown in with tongues in Acts, because in Acts it was always a legitimate use of tongues and, and there was always a reason for it. But here, Paul is talking about tongues when they're being used in a way that isn't accomplishing anything. So again, I think that helps us understand the text. And so in verse 6, he says, Now brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I profit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? In other words, if there's not some sort of interpretation, you're not being profited. And he uses himself and says, even if an apostle comes speaking in tongues without an interpretation, even that is of no value. And again, when we put this in light of modern day phenomena, what are we to assume? What 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 conclusions do we come to? When there's no interpretation pretty much at all in much of what goes on today. And so he says a message, any message, even a message from God is useless if it is not comprehended. And so let's read verses 7 and 9. If even lifeless instruments, such as a flute or harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And here I think he's speaking of music as opposed to noise. Remember he opened up chapter 13, talking about if you use any gift, but you don't use it properly God, in a way that honors God through love. It's just a lot of noise. And so I think he's kind of going back to that um, idea there. There are two things, and really you might say three things, that must be present in a church service for it to function properly. First of all, you've got to have love. You've got to have the right motives. That's what chapter 13 was about. Uh, secondly, there has to be a communication of truth. Paul has said that, has he not? It, we must have the right motivations, but we must, and if we have the right motivations, we will be speaking forth the word of God, not our own wisdom, but the wisdom of God. You say, well, what's the third thing that church needs? Well, think about it. You need a proper response. If you've got a, a church full of people with hard hearts, you don't want to hear the truth, nothing will be accomplished. So we want to be careful not to emphasize any one of those really above the others because they all are necessary. You take those out of the equation and you really have what the Corinthians are doing. They're coming together and they're making a lot of noise. They are, among other things, speaking in tongues that no one understands. They're promoting one sect over another sect, you know, one leader over another leader. They're making a lot of noise. They're doing a lot of stuff. But they're not in tune to the Lord, and they're not pleasing the Lord. And we, we, you know, no church should want that. If we come together, though, singing truth and praying with actual 
biblical goals in mind, teaching the word, then our services become a sympathy, a symphony, excuse me, to the Lord. The church service is not to be like an orchestra tuning up a lot of uh, incoherent noise, as it were. It is uh, to be making music unto the Lord, pleasing Him, much like the sacrifices in the Old Testament. It said we're, we're smoothing aroma or pleasing aroma to the Lord. It's not that the Lord enjoyed the smell of animal flesh burning. He enjoyed what pleased him was the honor that someone was repenting of their sins and, and there was atonement being made. He was being honored in worship. And of course he goes on to talk about the bugle, which was to communicate to the army their orders. They couldn't function if there wasn't some way of communicating to the army, right? And speaking in unknown tongues alone isn't communicating anything to the people. And so in verse 9, this is the result, and this alone destroys the modern day, I think I say, charismatic movement. Um, even if tongues were to, are to continue, which I, I don't believe they are, but let's say that, that we, we're going to take that position. Well, what does verse 9 say? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is being said? For you will be speaking into the air. You're making noise, but you're not accomplishing anything. And so, you know, I just don't see how you can get around even the first nine verses of chapter 14 when it comes to what we refer today as charismatic movement. And there's, of course, a lot of other things going on with that, too. Then notice uh, verses 10 through 11, which are interested in their own right. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So we are given language to communicate, but if we don't understand that language, what are we communicating Communicating, and the answer is nothing. Language without meaning is useless. Again, the uh, the KGB has an interesting take on this because it translates foreigner as barbarian. Now, you say, where, where does the word barbarian come from? Well, it, it's a, it's onomatopoeic, onomatopoeic. Make sure I said it right. It, it, it's it's a word that sounds out what they're trying to communicate. So. When the barbarian, the foreigner, would be someone that they don't understand the language. So when they're speaking, it sounds like a lot of gibberish. And gibberish is kind of like onomatopoeia too. It's a, it sounds like what it is. It, it doesn't make any sense. So in other words, they, they, what they were hearing was bar, 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 just a lot of nonsense. And so they come up with this term barbarian, those who speak in a uncultured way, in a way we don't understand. And, and that's what's going on here. And so I'd say that for us to uh, do as some do, to take this as Paul saying that there is a private prayer language that you can speak and not understand, and that that's a good thing, I think is a stretch. It's as if God can be a foreigner to us and we can be a foreigner to God. God is speaking to us and with something we don't understand and we're speaking back to God. He doesn't understand it as it were. We're being foreigners. We're being barbarians to each other. And I just don't see the point of it. And I don't think that's what Paul is teaching here. 
Now let me stop here and point out that it's hard enough for me to communicate truth to you at any time. You know, I am who I am, right? And, and there's there's a point at which it doesn't matter how gifted you are. There's it's always an effort to communicate, especially when you start talking about like the Word of God and and, and some difficult things, some important things like that. And you should then be striving to understand and follow me. And we all should be praying that, that the church is edified. Pray for me that I communicate well. Pray that you would have receiving ears, hear, ears that hear, right? I prayed for that in my uh, pastoral prayer earlier. Um, we, are, we are to instead add to this that speaking in tongues just for the sake, are we, excuse me, I meant to say this as a question. If we're to be praying that I speak clearly and that we understand truth, are we then instead to add to this to pray for speaking in tongues just for the sake of emotional highs? Because at the end of the day, that's all that's being accomplished. People think that they're seeing God moving somebody speaking in tongues and they're saying, wow, God is here. The the Spirit is present. Look, He's doing something. We could just easily say, you know, the pastor gets all excited. He's getting, he's getting going. He's doing a bunch of addicts. And people are saying, look, the Holy Spirit's got a hold of him. Boy, this is great. And all of a sudden, you say, well, wait just a minute. What's he saying? Well, I don't know. But look at him. He's just all excited. Look at that person. They're doing, they're, they're running around, uh, uh, hooping and hollering and speaking in tongues. And isn't this exciting? And you can watch videos of that going on in churches. No one's saying anything that makes any real sense, certainly not any careful understanding of God's word. But there's a lot of hoopla. And people are taking that as the Holy Spirit. You know, it's like it's like all of a sudden the Holy Spirit's making me do this. So I'm thinking, wow, that's neat. I'm not doing that, God is. Well, so what? You know, what what's being accomplished? We're 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 seeing something, we're getting excited over what we're seeing. But we're not learning anything. We're not hearing anything. I think that's Paul's point here. What should excite us is truth in our minds. Not activity and music and displays. Emotion's not a bad thing. We need emotion. But let's get, let's get excited over truth. Let's get over, excited over the fact that God is sovereign and that Things are going to happen just the way he wants them to happen. Let's get excited over the fact that we're saved by grace and that, that no matter how sinful I am, my salvation doesn't, isn't based on that. It's based on the righteousness of Christ. If that doesn't excite you, I doubt very seriously you know Christ. Because I would, I doubt very seriously, let's put it another way. I doubt very seriously you have the indwelling Holy Spirit. Because that is the fundamentals of what the Bible teaches. And there's, of course, many other things that we could add to that. So, so would seeing God cause some of us to speak in tongues, or even heal, for instance, move us more than seeing sinners repent and saints conquering sin and conquering trials and so forth? Now, be careful before you answer that, because we all know that if I walk down and I healed Christine, that would be exciting. Let's face it. Or, or any kind of thing like that. But, 
when God saves a sinner, when changes a heart that was ruined and, and walking in darkness and brings him into light, it's like, eh, you know, that's that's nice, that's wonderful. And I understand there's a, there's a sense in which our flesh gets excited over certain things and our spirit doesn't always react in the same way. And, and I understand that. But just be careful that, we, uh, that we're that we honest before the Lord. Lord, help me to be excited over the real spiritual movement of God, which is to change heart and transform lives and not heal and uh, do a lot of stuff that at the end of the day you can heal whoever you want to. They're still going to get sick and die. Right. Let's let's be grown up. Let's be spiritual about this. And, and Paul's going to use this very same phrase here, I think, in a moment. <clears throat> I have personally witnessed men who could whip a crowd up into an emotional frenzy, but not through biblical preaching. And, and I thank God for men who can do it, who have the gift to do it, and to do it through good preaching, and they can. They can excite us and they, to the no doubt the Holy Spirit's part of it, but then it's great. But but we all have seen it where nothing is being accomplished biblically. It's just a lot of emotion. They're good orders, but they're poor preachers of the whole counsel of God. So we want to convey truth and do so in the emotion it deserves, because these are important things, and they should be causing us. Excitement in, in, in our minds and our spirits, um, in our inner person, however you want to put that. They, they matter. They're life changing. They're, they're, uh, based on eternity. They have eternal ramifications. There's nothing more important and exciting and necessary than what we're doing right now in this building. See, and that's the thing where we have to stop and think about that because we all know that when we go home and we're watching a game or we're doing this, we're doing that. Our flesh just is all more, much more excited than it is now. But we got to just stop and think about what is the Holy Spirit trying to do? Get us excited in the flesh or get us to, by faith, lay hold of Christ and stand firm in Him and put Him before all else, you see. And that's not, it's, that's not fleshly excitement, but I hope it's exciting. I hope it's emotional. And so in verse 12, So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. And there it is. You see, you're so keen on seeing somebody speak in tongues as a manifestation of the Spirit. And Paul says, why don't you get excited when people are being edified? Being built up. Being changed. Being transformed by the Word of God. So there's never a, a, a time in which Paul sees any gift of tongues as okay to be used for anything other than communication because otherwise it's not doing any good. And then we come to the next section here, starting in verse 13, where he says, Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to interpret. So you see, he's pre- his tongue singular. He's, he's speaking in uh, the tongue, but uh, if he's not got the power to interpret it's, it's not it's not it's incomplete it's not like it should be for if i pray in a tongue my spirit prays but my mind is unfruitful now 
what what he means by spirit here is is maybe open to interpretation. Some have, have look at this differently. Some think it's a reference to the Holy Spirit, but no, it's not capitalized, and it shouldn't be capitalized. It's speaking about inside me. Spirit is actually the same word as breath. You know, it could be translated wind. So it doesn't mean necessarily that Paul is saying I'm speaking in in with my spirit. But my mind doesn't get it, but it's okay because my spirit is doing it. He could just be saying, I'm speaking with my voice. I'm making a noise with my mouth, but my mind doesn't know what's going on. And I think that's all, we don't really have to take it beyond that. It's not like there's, again, this idea of a private prayer language is that it's okay for me that as I pray, even though my mind doesn't understand it, I'm being built up, my spirit is benefiting from it. Well, I challenge anyone to explain how that works. Because other than an emotional high, I don't see what, what it's doing. So, so I don't see this as Paul saying that it's private prayer language is okay. And that it's okay to pray in one spirit in a way that you can't really understand. My question is, are we to take Paul as saying that it's okay? Or is he being maybe perhaps a little facetious or sarcastic, especially in light of what he's just said about the uselessness of there being no communication of truth. Is he not saying that he finds verse 14 unacceptable and only wants what follows? So, therefore, he says in verse 13, Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to interpret. Very clear. For... The reason is, for if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays on mine is unfruitful. That's not like, he's not saying that's okay. He's saying that's the problem. What, so in verse 15, what am I to do? Well, I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. So I will pray, but I'm gonna, if I, if, but I'm gonna pray, understand what I'm saying, or I'm not gonna do it. So to me, it's the exact opposite of a prayer, private prayer language. I will praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind, or I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, verse 16, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in a position, an outsider, say amen to your thanksgiving when he doesn't know what you are saying? <clears throat> the Holy Spirit will still give gifts, and it was still giving gifts like this, but they had to be used in a way that edified someone or it was serving no purpose. This doesn't have to mean that the norm for this age is that the Holy Spirit will be causing a very few people, it turns out, to have this private prayer language where they will be speaking in gibberish. They will not understand, but the whole point is that the experience itself is what is, makes it worth it. And again, I've read after these who think they have this private prayer language, and you don't need to understand it. Just doing it is all all that matters. That's what is the good part about it. I don't see Paul saying that that this is going to be the norm. This is what that's not his point. You you read about those who practice it, and it couldn't be more subjective when it comes to trying to define any of this. So fourteen again, and uh, it says here, going back to fourteen. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is also is unfruitful. 
Remember that the pagans of their day, speaking ecstatic utterances, was considered to be communicating with God, spirit to spirit. They thought that was a good thing. They didn't know what was being said. They had been ripped up into a frenzy. But they thought that, that was communicating with God. And, and they were, they didn't know what it was, what they were saying, and they weren't supposed to. And I think it's interesting. I think Paul is saying, you guys are doing the same thing, and it's not good. Mysteries were intended to remain mysterious, uh, to the pagan mind. Some charismatics believe that this refers to the Holy Spirit, as I said before, when it says, my spirit and my mind. But I, but I don't see how I don't see the fruitfulness in that. And again, why isn't any of this listed under the fruits of the Holy Spirit in Galatians five or anywhere else for that matter? Which I think is very telling. We never read of ecstasies or tongues as a fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's always conformity to Christ and holiness, because it is after all the Holy Spirit, not the charismatic spirit. And I think this is a very damaging argument against those who practice this gift today. Tongues and gifts are the means to which we, he produced fruit in them, but they weren't the fruit. We, you know, there, there are certainly gifts that are, are today that are to be meant to be used today to build up the church that we might. What, what's the point of me being built up? Not just to know more, but to be more like Christ. And that's the fruit. As I... Uh, live a Christ-honoring life, that's the fruit that we are to bear. So so the tongues isn't the fruit. Can't we not say that true spirituality involves more than the mind, but it never excludes the mind? Because that's the whole point. We are to be transformed in our minds. Can I be Christ-like without thinking, apart from my mind? And if I can, give me an example of that. So, verse 15, far from legitimizing uh, private prayer, he seems to say here that he has no desire to pray or speak in tongues privately if he doesn't understand what he's saying. And we never read of the Holy Spirit praying through a person uh, by bypassing their mind. There's no hint in the Bible that our spirits need a ministry that our minds do not need. Again, if you're trying to make the spirit to be some, to be the real you or something like that, uh, then uh, where in the Bible do we learn about the spirit being worked upon apart from our mind? With us understanding what's going on. I would challenge you to think of your spirit apart from your mind, the real you. You know, not your brain, but your mind. You know, I can't rejoice and know anything apart from my mind, right? I think that you're trying to separate something that can't be separated. And then in verse 16, I don't think this is Paul saying that private languages are fine when he says, otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of the outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he doesn't know what you are saying? See, there are those who say that when you when they read that verse that you are praying and you're giving thanksgiving and, and and you are being built up and a lot of good is happening, but if there's no interpreter, nobody else gets to benefit from it. And I don't think I don't think that you have to take it that way. I think Paul's just showing the uselessness of such a thing. 
because it um, it says he will remain ignorant. The, 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 the Greek term there is where we get the term idiot from. It's, it's not a slur. Uh, it, it, by idiot, he's talking about someone who is ignorant. He does, he remains ignorant. And so as we'll get to next week, when somebody walk, an unbeliever walks into the service, and all he does is hear people babble, he, he, he's unchanged. He's not, he thinks you guys are crazy. He's not, he remains in, 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 the, in this sense here, an idiot or an ignorant of, of what's going on. He's not learning anything. So is Paul not saying that the outsiders are the ones without the gift of tongues, the one who needs to learn are ignorant because they're not, they're, they're seeing you do something, but they're not getting anything out of it. This seems to say that seeing tongues as God moving in our midst and as a tool to excite us is not the intended purpose, which is what many say it is the intended purpose. And, and I think Paul's saying that is not accomplishing that. I think he's saying that those present should be able to understand, to be able to say amen to to whatever's going on. And so as we continue to read here, we're just about done in verses 19, 17 through 19. For you may be giving thanks well enough. I mean, in other words, it, he's not saying you are, but he's saying at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. Nobody knows. Nobody, who knows? He may be. That's the whole problem. You may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. And then he says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. (laughs) Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. And I think a lot of people read through this and they, they get these catchphrases, these phrases, and they build whole doctrines over these and they ignore the context. And so, uh, verse 18, when Paul says, I speak in tongues more than all of you, I'll, I'll, I'll give you an example. D.A. Carson, who I absolutely love as a theologian, says, he thinks verse 18 is saying that Paul speaks in a private prayer language more than anybody else. And I'm looking at that and saying, well, I don't see that. Uh, that's a that's a stretch. That that's assume that's assuming a lot of things. He's he's picked two or three different phrases in this text and said that's got to be private prayer language. All Paul is saying is that when it comes to the gift of tongues, he ex- he's exercises it more than they do. But why can't it be the gift of tongues as been has already been defined in Acts, for instance? You see, so it's, it's kind of strange how we, some, and we're all guilty of it. It's, it you know, studying the Bible is a difficult thing sometimes. Paul was an apostle, and we've already seen that tongues were a gift of exclusively to the apostles that, that they were apostles. And so I'm not surprised at all that Paul spoke in tongues, and that probably when he came to Corinth, he was speaking in tongues to demonstrate who he was and what was going on. That maybe when he went into a city and he went to the synagogue and he uh, talked to the to the Jews there, he perhaps spoke in tongues, much the same way in Acts, where uh, they saw this phenomenon, they knew about the text there that we looked at in Jeremiah, and it caused them to ask what's going on, just like in Acts 2. So, I'm not surprised that Paul says this. I, I, I would be surprised if it wasn't true. But to say that 
Paul, when he says that, must be speaking in a private prayer language, is to read into the text. It's eisegesis. It's reading into. It's not exegesis, taking out of the text something. And and I'm not persuaded by it at all. So the overall context seems to be without question that tongues are only useful if they are understood, and if they are not, they have no value. And we've still got another message specifically on this subject that I think we will bring this out even further. But then finally, in verse 19, notice the hyperbole. Five words understood is more is of more value than a whole service in tongues. And so when we have a church and the point is to say a few words, read a few Bible passages and, and, or whatever, have, have some music playing until people start speaking in tongues. And that's what we're, we've been headed for the whole time. That's what we want to see. Paul says, nope. The point is, it's, it's better to speak five words that people understand than a whole service of hoopla. And nobody's being edified. And you can take that for what it means. And I think it's pretty obvious what it means. And uh, I'll leave it at that. Any questions or comments? Yes, brother. Yes, 